The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Thank you for coming. We had to move out of that little room uh, so that we didn't have to sit on top of each other. Um, so this is a style that uses everything you can find, um, usually starting with a song. You know, traditional people all over the world, if something meaningful is aimed at, will start with the song. And the idea of a traditional song doesn't require that you know how to sing. You don't have to have rhythm. You don't have to sing on key. If you ever listen to a group of frogs down by the stream, some of those frogs have really bad voices. You know what I'm saying? But it doesn't stop them. And so the idea is, is, is to lend your breath to the song and lend your voice to the song. And um, so this is a song that would normally be used at the beginning of a gathering. It's a song from uh, the Dagara people in Burkina Faso, West Africa. I got it from Maladoma Somme. Uh, and it's a song to the ancestors. And so um, the idea in Africa is that the ancestors are not completely dead. When a person dies, their body dies, but their dream soul, if you want to call it that, continues. And so the ancestors are called the living dead, and we're called the living living, about to become the living dead. Right? Did you get that memo? No one, no one gets out of this alive. From the moment that we're born, we're walking towards our death, crawling. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Native American people call it the road of life and death. And the idea on the road of life and death is to die frequently so that when you get to the end, you die little deaths along the way. So when you get to the end and you encounter big D death, you're not so afraid because you've been dying all along the way. And dying in a psychological way, you could say to die means part of your ego is cast away, to put it into those terms. So the ego has to die for the hidden self, the genius self, I call it, to grow. Am I making sense? All right. So the idea is we're eventually going to become ancestors. And in African terms, um, they say you improve after you die. Um, because the body holds on to habits and things. And once the body's gone, it's like, oh, you see it all differently. So that's helpful, you know, if you have a family like mine. Uh, <laughs> That after, they get better on the other side. All right. So, and then once people are on the other side, they try to send us good dreams. That's the idea. So while you're singing this song, you could be inviting a dream. So uh, the song goes like this. Pura <clears throat> <clears throat> Pura samane, pura samane wo, pura samane wo, pura mamane, 
You get the idea? Pura means praise. Sa means sire. It's like the English word sire. It means grandfather or male ancestor. Many means much. Much praise to the male ancestor. Second verse, Pura, ma, mom, mother, grandmother. Much praise to the female ancestor. They go back and forth singing praise to the male or the masculine, praise to the female or the feminine. All right? Just try it out. You cannot hurt this song. It is too old. You can't hurt it. And remember this. Every mistake is a new style. So if you're making a mistake, the, mo the problem most people make with mistakes is after the mistake they stop. If you stick with your mistake, it becomes a new style. <clears throat> So let's just try it. Try your voice fitting into it. Pura samene, pura samene, pura samene wo, pura samene wo, mamani. Pura mamene, pura mamene, pura mamene wo, pura mamene wo. That's good. Now, these kind of songs, these old songs, first of all, they change your brain. They've, they've checked it out with computers. As you sing, your brain can go into coherence because of the tonation in the song. So that's one good thing. The other thing, they're used for protection and blessing. So once you know this song, you can protect yourself with it. While you're singing the song, if you think of someone, it means they want you to sing it to them. A poem is also, a song is a poem, it's also a prayer. And it's a way of praying for someone, sending the ancestors to protect them. And it doesn't matter where they are, because these songs are so old and so clever, there's no roaming charges. <clears throat> so let's just try it again. This is how people would call on the ancestors to say, listen... We're frail human beings. We've already made a lot of mistakes, and we've made the usual mistakes over again. And we're asking the ancestors for some guidance to show us a way so we, we live a long life and we do meaningful things. Something like that. <clears throat> Pura samene wo, pura samene wo, pura mamene, pura mamene, pura mamene wo. So 
So we're going to add the drums the way they would do it in the village. And it's the same thing. You just sing a little louder because now we're adding the drums. You ready? to simply pray for oneself you always pray for other people as well so anyone you know that's in trouble we send the song to them now we make it clear inside ourselves that we're wishing them well we're wishing them well-being and health and guidance and whatever they need all right whoever you think of you send it to them it can be people in high office believe me they need guidance it can be someone you're close to it can be someone you've had an issue with. Maybe you could gently harmonize things so the next time you meet them, it goes a little better. Pura samne Pura samne Pura samne wo going to keep singing we're going to take the drums out so we can hear all the voices same song same thing only we want to hear all the voices pura ma samne pura samne 
सामने वो पूरा सामने वो लास्ट फर्स इज ऑलवेज संग टू द ग्रैंड मदर्स नो वन एवर केम टू दिस अर्थ एंड लेस दे केम थ्रू द वूम ऑफ अ वूमन and in the interest of the rebirth of imagination and the continuance of the world you end the song singing to the grandmothers who represent the birth of imagination as well as biological life to the grandmothers pura mamne pura mamne pura mamne Hold the last note. Pura mamine wo. Thank you. Yeah. That sounded good. Yeah. You can clap. It's all right to clap. You know, there's two kinds of clapping. Uh what we used to call English drawing room clapping. And then the old kind of traditional clapping which the purpose of clapping was to fluff up one's spirit. And a person's spirit extends from the tip of one hand to the tip of the other. That's why you can say to someone get out of my face when they're literally not in your face. They're in the face of the spirit that's in front of you. And so a person's spirit is that big but living in the crowded world with a density of ideas that really are not imbued with blood or imagination causes people to do this. But if you want to clap in the old fashioned way you clap like this. Try it. Yeah. You fluff up you fluff up your spirit you can do it yeah that looks good it's actually in rhythm too all right so you can do that at home <laughs> or if you have to go to the motor vehicle bureau or or you know whatever <laughs> so um but seriously that's the old kind of clapping it fluffs your spirit people are that big uh we we're supposed to be feeling that it's hard to do that often so another tradition for us is poetry poetry is the natural speech of the human soul the soul does not of its own accord naturally use the speech of cnn The soul in its essence is poetic. And so everybody not everybody's a good poet, I can guarantee you, but everybody has poetry in their soul. And when a person finds their voice, they find a kind of script or words that are actually etched on their soul. People have language inside trying to come out. This is a poem from Rumi. You know Rumi? Yeah. Right? What 14th century Persian poet that uh 10 years ago became the best selling poet in the United States <laughs> told you the living dead they can come back it's called two kinds of intelligence there are two kinds of intelligence 
one acquired as in school when a child memorizes concepts and facts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as from the new sciences. With such intelligence, you can rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others depending on your competence in retaining this kind of information. You can stroll with this intelligence in and out of the fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets. And there's another kind of intelligence, one already completed and preserved inside you. There's another kind of intelligence, one already completed and preserved inside you from a spring that overflows its spring box, from a freshness that's at the center of your chest. This other intelligence does not turn yellow or ever stagnate. It is fluid, and it doesn't move from the outside to the inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. This second kind of knowledge is a fountainhead within you that moves out from you into the world. You get the idea? One of, the, one of the names for this second kind of intelligence is genius. That, so this is the premise I'm working with. After, I don't know, 30 years of working with uh, at-risk youth, that is to say gang youth, homeless youth, and at what I call at-risk rich kids, um, and working with homeless people in general and working with people in prison and working with battle veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and working with refugees. The one thing I've found that is common to everybody when they get the notion is that everybody is carrying genius inside themselves. And in case I didn't say it earlier today, genius means the spirit that's already there. Genius is what is born into the world with us and through us in the second birth of life it's supposed to come from the inside outside. Oh, did you get that idea? You're supposed to be born again? I know I've run into some Christians who said, I'm born again. I said, that's a good idea. Why don't you keep going? <laughs> You're supposed to be born again and again and again. So you get the picture now? You're supposed to die frequently and be born again and again. That's what's called the road of life and death. That's the road we're on whether we know it or not. But a key issue in terms of understanding oneself and something I learned from working with people at severe levels of risk is that everybody has genius. You can hear the music in the back starting to support this grand idea. See, when you get a grand idea, they just, the music comes in. Uh, the hell is that? Uh, so, so anyway, uh, so, but the idea to me is essential, the notion that Everyone comes into the world already imbued with something that has a unique quality that is a combination of their giftedness and their talents, their deep capacities, but importantly, their unique style of living. Am I making sense? It's the genius inside the soul that makes a person unique. And each person is unique. That's why we respect each other. The word respect, respect by the way, means to look again. 
If you only look once, you might see the surface of people and judge them by their appearance, which is common in the world right now. Respect means to look again and see what's inside that person. And what's inside, you can already guess, is a spark of genius that is trying to enliven that life at each critical turn and trying to grow into a brighter, a brighter light. And I'm going to talk, you know, when I talk here, I want to talk about this notion of genius. But I thought maybe I should do it through a story. Are you ready for a story? Yeah. So we don't actually have a stage. So when I tell the story, I get smaller. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Cue the music. <laughs> it's actually not that kind of story. But... Oh, okay. Okay. She's saying it's music about the universe and the stars. So that's appropriate. The genius in a person, <clears throat> in a person is not human. It's a mythological entity inside a person. And the original meaning of famous, you know how nowadays everybody once they're 15 minutes of fame, you'd think they'd have more egotism than that. You know, like about 15 years of fame. Anyway, people settle for so little. But the main point is this. The original uh, word is fama. It's a, ro a Roman word or a Latin word, fama. And it means to be seen standing with your genius. It doesn't mean to be seen like a lot of, by a lot of people. Like to be seen like a lot of people could also be infamous, not necessarily famous. You get what I'm saying? People have gotten confused and they've gone for quantity rather than quality. Fama, the root of fame, means to be seen with your destiny revealed and your genius made visible. Now that's something worth pursuing, yeah. You know? So we could redeem fame. All right. This is an old story from India. It's a very old story from India. And it's coming to mind because of this issue that we're living at the time of the rattling of nature and unraveling of culture. And so much is needed from the human soul. And yet people have known about this for a long time. And there are ancient ways of looking at it. And this is an ancient story from India. Can you hear me all right? Can you hear in the back? Can you hear the drums as well? So once upon a time, once back at the beginning of time, when time was still a tide and a rhythm of flowing in the world, once back at the beginning, when the tide of life was turning into time, there was a man, as it happened, who was the first person, they say. And for that reason, he was called Manu. And it happened that Manu, 
back at the beginning of time, was walking along the shore, puzzling over something because he had a problem. From that, you could conclude that humans have had problems from the very beginning. And so if you're having problems now, don't feel bad and don't blame it on yourself. It started at the very beginning. And just as people do now, Manu was walking along the edge of the water. People are drawn to the edge of the water where that which is mostly fluid turns into that which is solid. The Irish call it the aches, the X where one thing transforms into another. Because if you have a problem in your mind and you're walking on that edge that is one thing and then another, your problem might transform. That's why people do it. That's why Manu was doing it back there at the very beginning. Our ancestor just starting to deal with the problems of the world at the beginning of time. As Manu was walking along the edge between the firmness of the earth and the fluidity of the ocean. It happened that a little fish popped out of the water. And this was a long time ago when animals could talk like humans and humans could feel like animals. And this fish popped out of the water and said, save me, save me. It was a little fish asking to be saved. If you don't save me, the big fish will swallow me. For the big fish are always swallowing the little fish in this realm of the fishes. Now Manu, our first ancestor, had a choice. He could ignore this plea for help and say, listen, I have my own problems. One day there'll be a stock market and I'll be worried about the things I have invested in it. And one, you know, and so on, whatever you could, anyway, he had that choice, or Manu could reach across species and help that little fish. Now here's the good news. Manu, our first ancestor, responded to the fish. He reached down into the water and pulled the little fish out of the water. And once he had it out of the water, he held it in his hands. And that's the moment when he realized if I don't get this fish into some kind of water, I won't be saving it. I'll be causing it to die. For the little fish was already gasping for breath. And so Manu hurried back to the place where he lived, where he knew there was a container with water in it. And he took the little fish he had rescued from the sea and he put it into the little container. And once he put it in there, he began to nourish that little fish, you know, giving it only a little bit of food. You know, you don't want to give a little fish too much food or it'll die like all those goldfish you had when you were kids. And so Manu is now feeding a little bit of food to the little fish that he rescued from the great ocean. And sure enough, that little fish began to grow. That's what happens when you nurture something. And soon enough, the little fish was much too big to stay in that little container. And Manu had to take it out and find a bigger container. And so he did. He found a very big container with water and put the fish in and continued to feed it. And the fish continued to grow. And pretty soon, it grew too big for that container. And Manu had to put the fish in a pond. And he fed it in the pond. And the fish kept growing. And pretty soon, the pond was too small. And it was becoming a big fish in a little pond. And so pretty soon Manu had to take the fish out of the pond and put it in a big lake. And as the fish was in the lake, it began to feed on things in the lake and it kept growing. Now the fish was too big for the lake. And finally Manu, our first ancestor, had to take the fish out of the lake and carry it all the way back to the ocean. And now Manu was walking across the surface of the earth carrying what was now a huge fish 
in his hands and he held it above his head and he brought it all the way back to the sea and he put the fish back in the ocean except now it was a big fish and after the fish got into the ocean it spoke again to Manu and it said listen because you have helped me I will help you there is a time about to come when the rains will fall from the sky and the water will fall in torrents and it will fall continually and it won't stop until everything is flooded with water. And so here's my advice. Build a ship and get ready so that when the floods of change come, you will have a vessel to ride in. And listen, when the deepest storm occurs, I will come and help you as well because you helped me when I was vulnerable and small and in my hour of need. And with having said that, the fish turned and swam away into the great ocean. And I have to tell you, that fish was telling the truth. It was no fish story. It was the truth because one day the rains came and began to fall. You can imagine how it was and it fell for a long time, the water falling from the sky and we will leave the situation like that with the water falling from the sky and Manu, our ancestor, getting the ship ready to flow out, float out on the seas of the world. We will leave him there in that situation which is rather similar to our situation, at least for the people in Miami and other places. We will leave him there until we ourselves come back again to the story later. <laughs> Could you gather the story? You get the idea? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so now we have to try to make a little sense of there's more to the story. But this is maybe the second oldest version of the Noah story. But I like it because of the cross-species connection. And I like it because it shows, this is in ancient India, it shows that the origin of humanity involves reaching out to help the animals and to assist in the big changes happening in the world. You get that idea? That the, the part of us that wants to do that is connected to an archaic ancient part of us that knows how to do that. But I want to ask you a question. What do you think is going on when Manu is now carrying this huge fish back to the ocean? You can have the, the image of it. You actually can see it in old drawings. A man, in this case, carrying this big, huge fish. How would you interpret that image for ourselves living now? Um, I mentioned this morning, mythology is a series of lies that tells the truth. It tells the deep, deepest truths and the most necessary truths, but it tells them through the fiction of story or through the narrative method, which goes uh, astray from the facts into stuff that's more deeply woven in order to reveal hidden things. And each part of a story has hidden knowledge and information in it. And this part to me is significant. So I'm just asking a question because it's good to hear other people speak. What do you think it is? Yes. A what? She says it's sustaining life as it calls to be. So there's that word sustaining that has become very popular now. What else? Anybody have an idea? Yes. 
lifting something above ourselves. In order to save a part of the world, a part of nature, or even reimagine a part of culture, we actually have to raise the thing we want to nourish above ourselves. And that's what's called letting the ego die a little bit. Take on a project that is bigger than you, even bigger than your ego. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're allowed to have a big, smelly ego. You know, I mean, I even recommend it, especially to Buddhists, right? Right? I had a friend who became a Buddhist, and he said, I'm, I'm pretty sure my ego is almost gone. And I said, you know, this isn't even impressive. You had a very small ego to begin with. If you could develop a Donald Trump ego and meditate it away, we'd all bow down. Anyway, the first job is to have an ego. Then you start to figure out how to find things that are bigger than it. Thank you. What else do you think that might be? Yes. He didn't, he didn't eat the fish. He didn't see it as something to nourish him. He nourished it. In order to assist a part of nature or a part of culture or a good person or a person that just needs help, we have to not nourish ourselves, not malnourish. That's like, you know, don't do that. But we have to be willing to nourish someone or something uh, more so than we nourish ourselves. We have to learn about service in order to make change in the world. Yes. So she sees it as reciprocity, a cycle, that he helps the fish and then the fish helps him. Now, I want to say something about cycles. Generally speaking, in nature, it's not simply cycling. I know right now recycling is popular, and nature does recycle everything. But real change happens in spirals, and it happens in spirals that go down as well as up. In the Renaissance, they called it circulatio. That is to say, you go far as far down as you can in order to rise to the heights that you're capable of. And you go through this down descent thing over and over again. Even Manu had a bend down to the water in order to pick up the fish. And that elevation of the fish began with him being willing to bow down to the fish. So that it's a cycle, but also maybe a spiral. What else? Yes. Really good natural psychologist. Um, he started out with his own problem. Then he saw a problem in, in another being. And he devoted himself to that problem. And he lost his problem by serving something greater than himself. If you find yourself being caught in an area where you're starting to feel pity for yourself, go start feeding the hungry, helping the homeless, or taking care of animals. As we take care of something beyond ourselves, we automatically heal things in ourselves that we could not simply by paying attention to it. Does it make sense? I'm, I'm saying you don't just help others because you, what is that? Uh, good, intention, good intentions pave the road to hell. That's an old statement. I like it. But so the idea is not just you're helping something else in the world in order to help that something else. Yes, hopefully you're effective. But in helping others, we help ourselves as well. If you're doing meaningful work and not getting something out of it, you're in the wrong field. A person should be growing bigger. Notice he can carry the huge fish. 
Anything else? We're just, this is how you work with the story. Yes. She says, you could see in the story the unique human ability either to help nature or to harm nature. In this very old story, in one moment, the choice is there, and we have inherited that choice from the ancestors, and we're at a time where we have to make it again. And when people choose not to notice climate change, when people choose not to notice uh, institutionalized racism and social injustice and the increasing disparity between the rich and poor, they are choosing to harm their neighbors and to harm uh, nature as well. There is no neutral in this world. Either we are making it better and contributing something to the growth of life or we are contributing something to the depth of death. We're on the road of life and death. He not busy being born is busy dying. Remember Bob Dylan? He not busy being born, she not busy being born is busy dying. We make that choice every day. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so there's a little potential problem in the story. Um, the little fish says, save me from the big fish. They're always eating the little fish. And now the little fish has become a big fish, and it could go in a cycle where it starts eating the little fish. And, uh, but you'll see what happens in the story. It goes a different way. The old philosophical name for big fish, big fish eats little fish is called the realm of the fishes. Nowadays, it's called politics. <laughs> or else it's called corporations. The big, they try to get bigger and bigger. The big banks eat the little banks and all that kind of stuff. It's always been happening. It hap while we're sitting here, an uncountable number of small fish are being devoured by big fish. Really, that's nature. But here's the, here's the secret in all this stuff. There is something called contra naturum. That which goes against nature. And there is a time when nature needs to be supported entirely. And even inside nature, there's something counter naturum. And we'll get around to that. There are times when we have to go against what we think is our own nature. And that is to say, even if we're powerful, we have to submit to something that helps others rather than just exercise our power. Thank you for that. Yes. Okay, so this is an interesting idea. So we encounter something like a big fish and we, get, we take it or we connect to it and it grows on us, some kind of project or thing, and someday we have to let it go so it has its own life. That's a beautiful idea. I never thought of that in this story. But if you have a great project and it's doing good, you might have to let it go one day. You might have to let it swim for itself. That's a beautiful thought. So you see what's happening. Myth speaks to each person differently at the same time. That's why stories are so meaningful. Everybody hears and learns what they came to find, and the story just gives to everybody strangely, differently, all at the same time. So in the interest of time, I want to say something about why I'm intrigued with this scene in the story. Manu started out with something small that called to him. That is a, a theme, which is inside there's a voice, I call it the voice of genius, that is saying, hey, this is what your life is about. Hey, 
you should go this way. Hey, it's time to stop all that stuff and do this. But the voice is small, and therefore we don't hear it or we reject it, and we don't bend or go inside in order to pick it up. That's the first thing. The, the voice that knows who we are in essence begins small. If we pay attention to it and nurture, I'm calling it the inner genius, that inside us which is not born of our parents, it's born of the other world, the eternal world. Every human being has the thread of eternity running through us. I know we're looking for the divine, but it's partially hidden inside. That is to say, humans are stretched between the heavens above and the earth below. We are those beings pulled up and pulled down at the same time, and we are threaded with an invisible thread of the eternal that is trying to awaken us to our purpose in the world. As we nourish it, what happens is what we're working on becomes bigger and bigger. So here's what intrigues me about the story. I'm not a big fan of heroes, certainly not superheroes. To me, it's a fantasy thing that Americans do to avoid getting down to doing meaningful work that requires human connection, not just fantasy. You get what I'm saying? And so... It becomes at least curious to me to figure out how is it that a person can come to the point of carrying something much bigger than them and not be crushed by that weight. What I mean to say is if you become decent at something and you work at it, you will find yourself rising in the field that you're in and you will get more and more bigger stuff to carry and it will be heavier and heavier but the story says, if it's the fish of your life, if it's the thing you're intended to take care of, you can carry things that are big and very heavy that could crush someone else. Are you hearing me? If a person on the way to do meaningful stuff will encounter things that are heavy and difficult to deal with. But if it's the thing we're supposed to be working on, if we're following the thread of our genius, if we're walking on the gradient of our soul, we will find ourselves in the field where we can carry the weight and we can survive the complexity. Am I making sense? What I mean is there is no one idea on how to save the world or even how to become a person. There has to be many, many ways to do it. And so when a person finds their own way, they're capable of handling heavy things that might crush the next person. That's to me, is what the story is trying to say. So the idea is to answer the right fish, to follow the dream that really compels one's soul. And you can only find that through an honest experience of the deep self. No one can give it to you. It's called the pathless path. You have to wind up on a path where you discover the nature of yourself. And so here's another thing I guess I have to say. We're living in a culture that does not have a formal or an informed um, Sometimes that music just gets right in there. Uh, it does not have an informed uh, initiation process or rite of passage, right? You can grow by virtue of nature from being a little child to being a pretty big person. That's nature. But you cannot go from having childish ways to being an awakened individual simply by nature. It takes an interruption, an intervention, an invention assisted by culture. Am I making sense? A person 
that with a big body is not necessarily an adult, Donald Trump. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, so I just have to say it because we're trying to make changes in the world, and yet we come from a culture that lacks those processes that would lovingly teach take each girl and help her become a woman, a specific woman who knows the realm of the feminine and knows the interior of her own life. And the same thing with boys. When boys are not brought into a reflective, awakened sense of themselves and they wind up with guns in their hands, they will shoot people at the slightest inconvenience. You get what I'm saying? When you hear there's been another shooting, you know it's going to be a young man, almost always. When you hear it's a mass shooting, you almost always know it's going to be a young white guy. You get what I'm saying? You have to watch it. In Ireland, they used to say, you don't give a man a weapon until you've taught him how to dance. Dance means you've learned the rhythm of your own heart and your own body and your own soul, and you can't have a weapon in your hand until you know something about that and you know something about the gift of life and the responsibility to enhance life. And we have a culture that gives unawakened people automatic weapons. You get what I'm saying? I'm just talking about how this problem of the lack of rites of passage endangers everybody. And um, it's different a little bit for women and men. So it's also to say that the function of initiation and rites of passage was partially to awaken a person to their genius. That the initiators, the way I understand it, um, were watching to see the genius of the girl and genius of the boy and confirm it, and the old word was bless it. So here's a problem that I've seen in the world. We have a whole lot of adult people who do not know the nature of their own spirit or their own genius, and they can only guess at it, and they haven't had it confirmed or blessed. So here we can find ourselves later in life when we have resources sometimes and we have... Uh, a knack or an interest in responsibility, but we don't have confirmation of the genius inside ourselves and therefore we fail to act in ways that are fully creative or consistent. That's my concern. Am I making sense? I'm just trying to lay something out that's part of the problem. Because if a whole bunch of people who don't know who they are start out to help a bunch of other people and animals and things, it could widen up in one more colonial mess. Just saying. So, just to make the road a little bit more clear, most people probably have heard of the idea of a calling. A calling, right? Americans really like choices. It's way more valuable to be chosen than to have choices. You get what I'm saying? I had a friend come from Africa, and uh, first night here, she wanted to cook dinner because that's what you would do if you were at home in Africa. So we went to the supermarket in my little town, and she needed some cow's milk, and we went to the dairy section. And we stood in the dairy section, and there was, you know, heavy cream, half and half, 2%, 1%, whatever. I didn't kill it. Then there was goat milk. Then there was soy milk. Then there was almond milk. Then there was rice milk, and so on and so forth. And she said, is this what Americans mean by choice? And I said, yeah. And she said, I'd rather have the cow. <laughs> so choice is only really interesting until you've been chosen. 
And so the old idea was everybody gets called. But since we don't have the practice of initiation and we don't have the understanding of genius, because what's being called is the genius. The call is to the genius in the person. That's what's being called. So what happens is we often have delayed awakenings. And so I, I want to mention that because it's true, but I want to give you the good news also. The calling keeps calling. It's so essential to the nature of the human being to try and become an awakened individual that the calling keeps calling. And that leads me to the subject of the elders. Um, in America, the largest uh, age group right now are people over 60. I call them the olders. Um, <laughs> um, they're the baby boom who are a potential elder bloom. If the olders would become the elders, things could change more quickly. First of all, they would have a lifetime of experience to draw upon, and second of all, they have over 70% of the wealth and resources in the culture. And so if we're talking about changing culture and helping nature, one of the things to do is to get older people involved and have them begin to learn what it means to be an elder. And one of the things it means is elders act in order to create situations that will exist after they're gone. Native people say seven generations down the line, you make your decisions. It's called planting seeds for a tree you'll never see. The elders have to sacrifice their own comfort, in a sense, to have things happen when they will no longer be alive that can grow out of their decisions, out of their resources, and out of the things that they plant. Am I making sense? So now I just want to put those two things together. A young person is supposed to have the opportunity to awaken to what's been seeded inside themselves. I'm calling their genius nature, their talents, but their natural, unique style for being in the world. That's the opportunity that young people uh, are looking for. That's the appointment that their soul thinks they're headed for. And it's very disappointing when it doesn't happen. And nowadays, it can be so disappointing that young people are starting to commit suicide. Young people who have opportunity, if, if it's in your community, you know what I'm talking about. It's on the increase. So what's missing there is that opportunity to awaken and to find some kind of support like mentoring and guidance uh, at that stage of life. And then when you don't have awakenings that fully happen in youth, what happens is you don't get the awakening of the elders later on. You, you get what the point? And people can live a long life. Nowadays, people are living longer and longer, but some people are living longer and longer without knowing what they're living for. And then they're afraid of everything, and then they vote for the right wing. You get how that's going? You understand that the misunderstanding of conservatism has fallen into the lap of people who think they're just supposed to preserve and conserve their life when the real role of elders is to stand for the ideals more than anyone else. They say that young people are the ones who take the risk of standing for ideals and the only people that stand in a more courageous way for the ideals are the elders. The difference is the elders know it's unlikely that you'll reach those ideals, but you stand for them anyway. You get what I'm saying? That the changes we're looking for are going to require elders. You can clap.
And then the elders become the ones who can bless the youngers and the youth. And there is a secret conversation and a secret thread of imagination that runs between the elders and the youth. In the elders, what keeps the elders alive is the eternal youth inside them. And what's waking up in the youth is their genius nature, but also the inner sage in them. And when the elders are working together with the youth, they both become more youthful and wiser at the same time. And that's something that is is missing, which means we could find it again. Now it's getting darker. Must be time to go back to the story. You ready to go back to the story? Can you hear me again? You remember where we were? Where were we? Manu, our first ancestor, had nourished that little fish until it had grown enormous. But because it was his fish, because it was the fish that called to him, he could carry it despite its huge size and great weight. And the only place to carry it to was back to the ocean where it had come from. And so Manu had done that. And the fish, out of gratitude, told Manu to get ready for the flood. For the flood was coming to prepare a ship. And so Manu did it. He built a ship. He got some friends to help. And he gathered family and friends. Maybe animals, I'm not sure. But anyway, when the floods came and the rain came and the waters were rising and the village was being flooded, Manu got ready with the ship, and sure enough, just as the fish said, in the height of the storm, the fish came back, and it spoke to Manu and said, take a rope and throw it around the horn on my head, for the fish had a horn on the peak of its head, and Manu threw a rope around the horn on the fish, and as the waters were rising higher and higher, and everything in the world was getting flooded, until there was nothing left that was rising above the water except the peak of the holy mountain, that was the only thing, the only high point that wasn't swallowed with the great flood that was pouring over the world. As all of that was going on, the fish that had once been a little fish was pulling the ship of Manu with his friends and his relatives and his children and everybody else on the ship through the great storm. And eventually the fish carried the ship and everyone on it to the peak of that holy mountain that stood above the storm and threw the rope onto the tip of the mountain so that now the ship with the people in it were tied to the top of the holy mountain and floating on the top of the water that had risen to the height of the world. And at that point, the fish spoke to Manu one more time. And as the fish spoke, it turned from a fish into a god. That is to say, out of the fish came the god Vishnu. Vishnu had been the fish all along. The fish had been divine. In bending down, Manu had picked up the divine, which most people think you find up. But in bending down, he had found that which was divine. And the God said to him, because you have acted in this way, you have trusted the guidance that I gave you, I have saved you. And now what you have to do is remember the stories 
that keep people going in the times of flood and great difficulty. And here's some instructions on how to do the rituals that keep people together and pe keep people aligned with the animals and nature. And the god that had been a fish taught Manu all the rituals. And at that point, the waters began to recede and Manu and all the people on the ship went back onto the earth. And then they began to practice those rituals that kept them connected to the earth and connected to the animals and connected to the divine dance of nature. That's what they say when they tell this old story that said that humans are not only connected to all of nature, humans are by their nature connected to the divine, which is trying to get us to listen and trying to inform us of what projects we should undertake. At least, at least that's my take on the story. And I find the story very encouraging every time I run into all the great difficulties and all the storms of the world. It's an old story and me, I'm sticking to it. Any idea of the time? All right, so think about the story for a minute. Thank you. A story is a series of codes um, and symbols that speak to where we're at in the moment. You could hear the story one day and be struck by the little fish. You hear it another day, you're struck by the big fish or you're struck by the fish turning into the god. Um, each person, just like nature, is changing all the time. And I call what a story does is uh, mythological acupuncture. <laughs> it sticks you just where you need the needle. So just notice what struck you, and maybe just for a, a couple of minutes, tell us, people who haven't spoken, what struck you anywhere in the story. Yes. She said... Just like the story of Noah, this story bothers her because even though some of them come out okay, there was millions and millions of animals and people, uh, like the story in the morning, where they get burned or they get drowned. And so it's kind of discouraging if you're thinking in terms of inclusiveness. Yeah. So, so what, why, what do you make of that? Right. Well, at least in this story, the God is not vengeful, the God's helpful. So just imagine there's more than one kind of God. Yeah. Okay. So here's a way to look at that. The idea is, see, it's heroicism that tells us we should save everybody. Guess what? It doesn't happen. It won't work. I've been here long enough. I've watched people try to save everybody and they wind up in a scandal. You know what I'm talking about. If you make the project so big that it includes everybody, it is not genuine, really. 
So what I'm suggesting is not a heroic thing like Noah or Manu or you or someone else should save everybody. You listen to the fish talking to you and you do your part of it. Remember this morning, if you were there, the Irish story says you go to the darkest place and find the thread that you see and you begin to work that thread. That's the only way this is going to happen. If, if enough people were picking up little fish, the next thing everybody is on a ship. So, so it's a symbol of what can happen. It's not an accounting of what can happen. Am I making sense? You have to follow the symbol. And, if, and, and if, if the idea that a person is going to save the world is a super heroic idea that has never happened or worked out, but especially cannot happen at this time because it isn't just the flood, right? It's also the arid areas, it's also the toxic areas, it's also the, the collapsing areas. It's, it's not just the water problem, it's the, uh, the solar problem. It's every kind of problem all at once. We're living when there isn't just one problem, but so many problems, they're almost uncountable. And what I'm suggesting is, if we each just attend to our own thread of genius, then maybe enough minds and hands and hearts will be applied in the right area. And we don't have to know everything. We just have to know that which is calling to us and pulling on us. And then we liken that Irish myth. Everybody pulls their part back together. And from everybody doing what they're able to do, the center is remade. Does that help with that? Yeah. I mean, I'm suggesting we're in a different mythological stage than the hero's journey. That we're in something that has to have a much greater uh, scope and a much greater diversity in order to face all the problems. So then I just have to figure out what it is that I might be able to do, and then someone else is going to figure out how to go help those other people and those other fish. That's how I understand it. The stories are symbolic. They're not uh, literal. They're not, you know, you have to hear it that way, yes. Um, two things that Mary mentioned. Okay, two ideas she has. One, two things that struck her. One was that you have to bend down to find your calling, not reach up to it. Big surprise. And then the other one is what we learn to carry then carries us. So those are two really good things. I want to address the first one. Um, all right. Two big energies in the world, you could say. One is spirit and one is soul. Spirit is connected to air and fire and it's rising up. And that's the one we've been told about. Get connected to the spirit. The other one is soul, which is connected to water and earth, and it descends. And it turns out you can only legitimately go as high as you descend down. A person who rises too high too fast, remember Icarus? Got right up there by the sun and then fell. Well, it's called the Icarus complex, and it might as well be called the American complex. <laughs> right? Because everybody wants to be number one on top. Or if you go into the spiritual groups, everybody wants it to be one spirit and everybody connected. There's a certain correctness about that or charm about that. But this world is made of the one and the many, not just the one. And the many are just as important as the one. That's one thing about that. But the other thing, I remember that uh, in during the pogroms... Um, in Poland and places when people were disappearing and being, you know, destroyed.
for nothing other than other people's idea of who they might be. People used to come to this one rabbi who was really smart and say, Rabbi, what has happened to this world that no one can see God anymore? All we see is devastation and destruction. And the rabbi said, the reason people aren't seeing God is because they're not willing to look down far enough. Think about the earth as a place of divine things. The heaven isn't somewhere outside this earth. Heaven is here on earth. That's the old idea. It's important for this reason. The monotheistic religions, and you know who you are, the monotheistic religions all consider this a fallen world. And because it's a fallen world, it doesn't matter what happens to it. That is to say, the divine and heaven exist somewhere else. And most of the big religions think that the divine is only going to come back when this world is destroyed. You know what I'm talking about. It's the root of terrorism and it's the root of fundamentalism as well. And so they've missed the small print, which says whatever you find here is what you will find there. You get what I'm saying? This is not the right time to believing that the, that the divine is in the other world and we have to leave this world to go there. This idea to be in the world of not of it, but not of it is a mistake. I mean, I can't prove it. It's just a feeling I have. It's a mistaken idea. We're supposed to be in the world and of it because the divine is threaded into us and to everything in the world. And if we're fully in the world, we find the divine here. That's the idea. And in finding that divine, we imbue this world with life. I hope I'm making sense. It's time to drop those ideas. You get what I'm saying? Those are the ideas. It's because people think the earth is not tied to the divine or imbued with the divine that people can exploit it and feel good about it. So there's a huge misunderstanding there. I would add the idea from India of the Bodhisattva. The idea is not to become enlightened and rise in the light above everybody. Or if it happens, the idea is to drink it in for a night or two and then come back down to earth and start helping everybody else. You get what I'm saying? This is the period where we're supposed to be finding the beauty and the divine here on earth. We're supposed to be finding that way of being rather than thinking that we're going to leave the earth and find some better life somewhere else. I hope that makes sense because that's the key to what do you call it? Terrorism is the idea that it doesn't matter what I do to you or do to the earth because I'm going to get my reward somewhere else. I'm telling you, they didn't read the small print. What you find here, you find there. There is only a veil separating the eternal world from the m m matter world or the maternal world, and that veil is lifting. We're living in the time of the lifting of that veil. Yes. He's, he's going to the part of the story where there's a series of containers of different sizes, and he's catching the wisdom of big isn't always better the smaller container is the right container at the right moment. And initiation is really a series of containers. Like, really, you know, let's say I'll follow Jung, right? Jung says there's a deep self within everybody. That is the real self that's connected to the eternal world. And then there's the little self called the ego, which thinks it's the big self. You know, that's a small confusion. I hope you've noticed it. But, and so once you realize, wait a minute, the little self is not capable of dealing with life. 
It just pretends it is. You don't get rid of the ego right away. You have to expand it a little bit and then expand it a little more. You get what I'm saying? Um, so I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I'll tell you a strange thing, a fish story. Um, there's a woman who, for reasons we don't know, wound up all alone and feeling a little isolated. And she realized she needed companionship. Women are often smarter about that than, let's say, men. And she was walking down the street and walked past a pet store. And in the window of the pet store, she saw one of those small containers with a goldfish swimming in it. And she thought, that's what I need, a goldfish. And so she goes in and she gets herself a goldfish and she gets a container for it. And she has it at home. And now she's not feeling isolated because every day she talks to the goldfish. You know, now you have to understand a fish is a representation of the deep self, which is often called the golden fish of the self. And so she's doing a pretty good Jungian type move here. And she also has a friend now and she's talking to the goldfish every day. And things are actually better than they were. And then after a while, the water in there is becoming unclear, and she realizes she has to change the water. And in order to change the water, similar to the story of Manu, she has to take the fish out of the water and put it into another container in order to clean the water. And she's looking around, and she realizes the best container nearby is the bathtub. So she fills the bathtub, puts the little golden fish in the bathtub, and cleans the container, and she goes back to get the fish and she sees the fish in her bathtub, now in this huge container, and it's swimming in the same size circle it was swimming in when it was in the little container. You get what I'm saying? All right. The meaning of it is this. We're usually swimming in a much smaller container than our psyches are able to expand to. Do you get what I'm saying? That in order to transform and change and grow, we have to actually swim out of the comfort zone. We have to allow that part of ourself that has the intuition of swimming into the bigger waters to get out of the circle we're used to. The circle we're used to is called the attitude of the ego. Everybody, in order to be helpful to others and themselves, has to expand and loosen the dominance of the little self or the ego. That's what I got out of you bringing up the containers. Yeah. Okay, so, she, well, she brings up the idea that at the end, the fish, which is really the deity, gives the knowledge of rituals to Manu, our ancestor. So that's a way of saying another thing that's missing in the world is the rituals that keep us together in the world. That there's a huge loss of the notion of rituals. That, um, like, when we come in here and we sit down, we don't know what's going to go on, but we start singing... Something inside goes, wait a minute, I think I know this. Because people have started out by singing for ages and ages. There are rituals that are natural to bring people together. And if we're going to be successful in forming groups that help the environment and forming groups that heal culture, we're going to also have to rediscover the rituals that keep us connected to each other, that keep us the one individual self connected to the community and that keep the community of people connected to the natural world. There's an old idea that says the sacred forms where culture and nature meet. I'll repeat it because it's a great idea. 
The sacred occurs where culture and nature meet. Yes, there's sacred in, in nature all by itself. But when human imagination and cultural ritual is brought into the co connection with nature, something deeply sacred occurs. And that deep sacredness is what renews the spirit of the person, the soul of the person, while it also does reverence and gives gratitude and blessing to nature. I hope that makes sense. We're going to have to reimagine and reinvent rituals that keep us together because when things start to go better, there is a tendency for people to say, well, it was my idea. It was my idea. Wait a minute. I did that. It was me that did that. Wait a minute. I didn't even see you when we were saving all those trees. Where the heck were you? You know, and all of a sudden people are divided and people tend to divide when it works. When it's not working, everybody gets together and say, what the hell do we do? Once it starts working, you get what I'm saying? So there's going to have to be the reimagination of rituals that keep people together that help educate us how to handle power and how to handle differences. And it's one thing to bring all the people together. It's another thing that has a ritual that makes it possible to stay together. And the end of the story, the divine or the god or the fish or whatever is saying, here's the rituals you're going to need in order to keep life going in this kind of sacred way. All right? Yes. Thank you. So he's practicing narrative intelligence. He said he's watching the containers grow like evolution from one thing to a bigger thing to a bigger thing. And it's like steady growth. And it's what people call evolving in a sense. And evolution clearly is going on. But it's not just evolution. Then suddenly there's a huge transformation when it goes into the ocean. And now it becomes a complete change of life. And that's a way of understanding what happens. That's how growth occurs. And the changes we're looking for need the practice of working at things and getting better and then being ready for a bigger trans transformation when it carries beyond ourselves, ourselves being carried along by the things that we thought we were going to change, find ourselves pulled into that change, and then we have to become new selves. You know, most cultures in initiation would have initiations throughout life, and sometimes in initiation you would be given a new name so that no, everyone would know your name, but they wouldn't call you by your name because they saw you change so much that they want to keep that knowledge present by calling you by another name. Sometimes we're supposed to change so much we get a new name. Way back there. Well, that's a complex question. I want to take the part about literalizing. One of the biggest dangers in the modern world is literalization. The question was, how do you see the connection between the modern people's tendency to literalize stories and myth and not see the symbolic value or the imaginative value or the transformative value, and how does that associate with initiation? So I want to take the first part of it. One of the biggest dangers in the modern world is literalism. People keep saying, someone comes up to you and you're arguing or discussing, and they say, well, the fact of the matter is, you know, I always think, oh, here comes the bullshit. <laughs> People think it's most convincing to say the fact of the matter. Sometimes it would be way more convincing to say the dream that's behind everything I'm saying is this. Then you might listen and go, wow, if you've got a dream, I'll agree with you. You get what I'm saying? So we happen to be living in the age of um, hyper-rationalism and literalism, which is the root of fundamentalism and, and things like that. 
and ideology. Um, just to say, I'm not a big fan of ideology. Ideology is what happens when you have no more imagination. Right? A commitment of belief to a series of fixed ideas is what happens when you can't think for yourself. And the danger in ideologies is it allows me to cause suffering or, or ignore suffering in other people because I have an idea, that, an idea or an ideology that makes it okay. You know what I'm saying? Ideology is, in, uh, is the opposite of compassion. And so when people have ideology, ideologies, it's okay with them if other people suffer. You get what I'm saying? Uh, whereas, yeah, whereas imagination would give us the capacity to feel compassion for the other person's suffering. The issue about initiation is really pretty complex um, because initiation, one way to understand it is the revelation of oneself to oneself. I'm trying to give it a psychological character that the troubles we encounter to life in life are either one big pain in the ass that we didn't deserve or else they're the opportunity to find deeper resources in ourselves and reveal to ourselves who we are in depth. That would be one way to understand initiation. I would also say this old idea that I like. If you find yourself in trouble, in conflict, or in some big difficulty, you're either going to come out of it a bigger person or a smaller person. If you come out the same, it really wasn't very big. But if you know, get what I'm saying? And so if in the middle of something you're starting to feel despondent and crushed and getting smaller, just remember... The way you come out of trouble is as a bigger person. That's another way to understand initiation. Initiation means to step into a larger life again and again. And a person is supposed to be finding opportunities for initiation all the way to the day they die. And death is considered the last initiation that delivers you from this world you were once delivered into, into the other world behind this world. I don't know if that helps, but I'm going to stop there. Yes. Okay, I'm not exactly sure what you mean, but I want to say this about elders. Um, elders. An elder is not an elected position. You can't run for the office. Um, it, in other words, it's something that awakens in a person um, and makes their life more about service and dharma and more about finding ways to bless other people. Um, so here's an old idea from Africa. Uh, the elders are considered to be the source of blessing. But what they say is, you can only get a blessing from someone who can curse you. In other words, they don't think the elders are nice. They think they're wise. They think they're deep. They think they have endurance and a capacity for survival, but they don't necessarily think they're nice. For a person to be able to bless you, there could have been or had to be the opportunity there for them to curse you. What I mean to say is the elders are, they used to be connected with salt. And one of the job of the elders is to bring the salt of truth into things. In other words, I don't see this culture changing simply on a political basis. I grew up in the 60s, and I used to think that politics could change it. And believe me, I vote and do all that, and I vote for the things that are progressive and meaningful. But I don't expect the changes all to come from elected officials. I imagine much more 
people stepping into some kind of um, role of the elder actually are more likely to make meaningful changes because they will sacrifice at the right time and not simply hope to get elected again. You get what I'm saying? And then I want to repeat, the elder plants seeds of things that grow that they may never see. So that means the elders are all tied into imagination and myth and the idea of the eternal world because they're planting without ever intending to be around to see the fruit of what they planted. That's a big idea for Americans to get to that step. All right, I know you've been waiting over there. So there's a question about the Pope, and I'm a recovering Catholic, so you have to watch out with what I say. Uh, but actually, as a recovering Catholic, I'm feeling better about the Catholic Church than I have in probably 50 years because uh, this Pope, Francis, uh, seems to be carrying the namesake of St. Francis in a way that I have never seen done by any, any other leader in the Catholic Church. It is a signal, a symbol that things can really change. An organization that has been very... more organs please if you would just turn in your hymnal Uh, my mother may she rest in peace loves to hear me talk about the improvement of the church but anyway hidden inside the great religions hidden inside the exoteric forms of the great religions, which often divide people, are the esoteric inner truths that could bring people together. I don't give up on religions, you know, as a matter of principle and now as a matter of fact because of what Pope Francis has done. It's a beautiful thing, the Dalai Lama, Pope Francis, there are other leaders like that. Maybe there's going to be a return of the compassionate ecumenical idea in leadership. At least we see some instances of it, and that's enough sometimes to encourage the soul to make its own attempt to be that big and be that compassionate. To have someone come into the United States Congress and talk about disparity and talk about the wealthy giving to the poor, which was the essence of that religion at the beginning. You know what I'm saying? It started with poor people. To have have that happen in one's lifetime is a beautiful thing. I think it's a great thing. It shows that there's the possibility of change in the world. And clearly, the angels and the music agree. All right. So I think we're very quickly. Sorry. Yeah. All right. What's your name? Josue over here is asking a good question. What do you think about the issue of white people not having indigenous roots or thinking they don't have indigenous roots or not knowing how to find their indigenous roots. And I don't know, but I would say this. The idea of white people is a 200-year-old bad idea. (laughs) You know that thing they used to say, why don't you go back where you came from? Well, there is no white land. You cannot go back to white land. It does not exist. There's Poland, Ireland, the Netherland. That's a far out place. The (laughs) Nethers. There's even Greenland, but there ain't no white land. So what happened is someone cooked up the idea of white 
And because white looks like light or could be said to be connected to light, all of a sudden those people that looked a little lighter claimed that they were brighter. That's the IQ test. Believe me, it was built on racism. You research it. IQ is built on racism. Um, weird, weird story. But, but then to be white meant to be pure, meant to be bright, and meant to be right. And that allows people to use the might of being white to the detriment of other people. It's a completely false idea. So inside people, there's the depth of indigenous ancestry. There's no way else to do it. I found out my people come from Ireland. They, it's, they come from people who love the land. Ireland, the, the island of Ireland, the Fair Isle is called the Emerald Isle, the Green Island, and it is ruled by three goddesses and always has been. And the Irish are in their nature rooted to the earth and rooted to the great feminine imagination of, of the green land and so on. And, and the European people, you know, the, the people that colonized everybody that have cut down all the trees and are still cutting them down in the Amazon were tree worshipers. When you go back into the, the, the story behind European culture, they were tree worshipers. They honored and respected and considered the divine was in the trees. And so there's a deep ancestry. But what happened, I think, is, is white thinking, like a whiteout. <laughs> like white people thought if we could just pretend we had no past, we could claim we have the whole future. White people think... Life is about the future. All right, there are no white people. People caught in white thinking think that the future is what counts, and they try to erase the past like some big cultural whiteout thing. And that's what happened. And so there's a loss of memory. Racism is partially based upon forgetting the depth of humanity that is the automatic inheritance of, of, of every child born. And so the good news is you can go back and reclaim ancestry. Now, I recommend on your way back, there's some you want to exclude. You know, you come upon some, you just want to push them out of the way and get back to the good ones. But in the meantime, if you watch it, white people in America pick African-American ancestors like Martin Luther King is an ancestor for a lot of white people. You get what I'm saying? You can ride on other people's ancestors too. But deep in the depth of the soul, everybody is indigenous. Everybody has the indigenous root that connects the soul, not just to the earth, but what they used to call the soul of the world. And so... I think what looks like white people could become completely soulfully embodied people again. At least I'm hoping so. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. We so should we sing or something? Yeah, we're going to sing. Yeah, let me just say, um, I used to be a big fish. And I'm really, I'm fed swimming in this pond Thank you. Thank you, John. You want to just drum a little bit? We'll drum some and then go into Puro Semini. Okay. So we're going, to find, we're going to find a way to bring it to a close. And in the ritual sense of things, you often close. You close the way you started. So we'll go back to the ancestors because, in a sense, we called them in in the beginning. And we'll tell them we're kind of finished, you know, fooling around here. And they can go back, you know, to the ancestral happy hour. But, um, uh, but we want to get the drums into it first. You ready? You just riff. Don't don't hold back. Okay. All right. You start.
the drums but keep the song going first coming up for the grandmothers. Imagine your mother, your grandmother, whoever gave birth to you, whoever has nourished your life. Put <laughs> 
last note and echo it in the room so whoever comes in here next starts singing but doesn't know why. Put out my minute, whoa, 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 Thank you for coming. Thank you for singing. Thank you, John, for playing. When you hear the little fish call, bend down, if you would, and pick it up. Good luck. Good luck.